This is the Oanda Podcast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, talking to Oanda senior market analysts across the world. And today we're joined by Craig Earlham in London. Good afternoon, Craig. Good afternoon. It's the first Friday of the month, of course, and that can only mean it's non-farm payroll day, Craig. And, uh, well, the latest figures that have come in in the last hour or so, uh, U.S. employers adding 315,000 new jobs in August. That is, of course, far fewer than in July as fears continue that the labour market is heading for a slowdown. But those figures actually were better than expected. They were slightly better than expected. Um, But what is interesting, I guess, about them is that when you look at how the market reacted, it shows that the actual headline non-farm payrolls number maybe got people a bit angsty, a bit nervous. What people didn't want to see, funnily enough, right now was a really strong jobs report, which is quite unusual. Like ordinarily, you want a strong jobs report. You want to see signs that the economy is booming. But at a time when the Fed feels like it's having to slam on the brakes in terms of monetary policy and raise rates aggressively. What people want to see is kind of a lukewarm report that continues to show that the US economy is strong, but not firing on all cylinders, allowing the central bank to take its foot off the brake. And that headline figure suggested that still kind of firing on all cylinders, it was a bit above expectations. Yes, slightly lower than the 526,000 a month earlier, but still extremely strong. Um, So we saw a bit of a knee-jerk reaction on the back of that NFP number. But then you look at the rest of the reports, and actually it's very Fed-friendly. We saw the participation rate um, actually rose from 62.1% to 62.4%. So that's quite a big jump. The markets were expecting a rise to 62.2. So that was quite a big jump in terms of participation and one that the Fed will very much welcome. One of the reasons that the Fed believes that there's going to be more slack in the labour market and wants to see more slack in the labour market, they want it to come from higher participation because it's still not recovered to pre-pandemic levels rather than people laying off workers. So this is a, a positive signal. Of course, it's just one jobs report, so we don't want to get too carried away, but that's a very welcome signal. What that also means, because of the way the unemployment rate is calculated, is despite the fact that we saw strong jobs growth last month, the unemployment rate went from 3.5% to 3.7%. So uh, so that was, again, uh, something that the Fed will be happy with, because you're effectively seeing a little bit more slack without people actually uh, losing their jobs. And then we look at average hourly earnings on an annual basis. That stayed at 5.2%. It was expected to rise to 5.3%. So all in all, this is a really good jobs report. We've got strong jobs growth, more slack in the labour market, and wages didn't uh, accelerate. So from the Fed's perspective, that ticks uh, a few boxes. I don't know if it's enough to take 75 basis points off the table or even not make it still the preferred option, given all the communication we've had from policymakers over the course of the last few weeks. But it certainly increases the odds of a 50 basis point rate hike next month. And it really does draw now more attention to the inflation reading in two weeks' time. Because if we get another softer inflation reading, then all of a sudden 50 basis points could become the more likely uh, outcome in two weeks, in three weeks. So do you think the interest rate rises that we've had so far are having the desired effect. You said it might mean that it won't be 75, it might just be 50 basis points. And is that reflected also in the fact that the global markets today have risen, not quite so much in the United States, but certainly across Europe? I think the 
interest rate hikes are having an effect in some areas of the economy more so than others. I think they're certainly having an impact in the housing market, for example. But I do think it's also something the households are paying a lot of attention to. It's not something that's exactly not been in the headlines. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone knows that rates are rising very quickly and is a little bit concerned about it. So it is having an impact on sentiment. I imagine it's also having an impact on hiring decisions within firms. But it's not just the fact that interest rates are rising they're doing. It's the combination of rising interest rates and the rising cost of living, higher energy prices, which is compounding pressures on profitability and on household budgets. So all of these things together, I think, are starting to now have a cooling effect on the economy, which is why jobs growth is starting to slow a little bit. It could also be, and this is only theoretical, um, uh, of course, but I think it's something that the Fed was hoping maybe would start to happen, is that with inflation already being high and the cost of living squeeze impacting households, that may actually draw people into the labour market because they've kind of burned through savings and maybe they need that extra bit of cash and therefore they need to work more hours than they've worked before. Or people who have fallen out of the labour market out of choice deciding they need to rejoin the labour market and get a job. Or people who have maybe retired a little bit earlier and decided that they can't live off their pensions and therefore need to come back into the labour market. These type of things as a result of the cost of living crisis, drawing people back into the labour market again creates uh, some of that slack. So I think I think these are, are all potentially positive indicators um, as far as this jobs report is concerned. In terms of the impact on the market, we saw the dollar slip a little bit. We saw a little bit of volatility in the dollar because that headline NFP number, I think, did cause a bit of a wobble. Same in the bond markets as well. But equity markets added around half a percent in the back of this. So I think this is a clear sign that obviously that doesn't mean it's done and dusted. It doesn't mean that anything dramatically has changed but it's a slightly more favorable jobs report than i think people feared sure and the dollar has been strong in uh, recent days particularly strong against the yen uh, which has now fallen to a 24-year low yeah i mean this is uh, very much a case of two incredibly divergent monetary policies we've got the federal reserve which has raised interest rates by 75 basis points on two consecutive occasions and could do a third time and has strongly signaled it wants to and you've got the Bank of Japan where they've got inflation above 2%, but they don't think it's sustainable. So not only do they still have their base rate at minus 0.1%, but they're also conducting QE in order to maintain their yield curve control tool with the keeping the 10-year yield around 0% within a 25 basis point margin. So we're seeing one that's doing a lot of monetary easing and another that's doing a lot of monetary tightening. Now, that's only going to have one impact on the uh, currency, and we've seen that play out really now for quite some time we've seen massive moves in the dollar yen pair with the dollar appreciating rapidly against the yen and now we've this week we've seen it hit the yen hit a 24 year low against the dollar another thing that makes that really interesting is that there's been a lot of speculation about what will happen when the dollar yen pair comes around 140 I should stress, this is just speculation, but we're seeing more and more officials in Japan talking about the possibility of currency market intervention. It's something that they have done before via the Ministry of Finance through the Bank of Japan, and uh, it's something that people are speculating could happen again, and they think that 140 could could be a level that makes officials in Japan very nervous. We had more comments overnight uh, from uh, from certain officials at, in Japan uh, suggesting that this is something that they're going to watch with a high sense of urgency. I imagine we're going to see a lot more attempts to kind of talk up the yen and talk down uh, that particular currency pair. But I think it's certainly one to watch now because we're now in a zone where, um, where we could potentially see a lot more verbal intervention, uh, but also maybe traders getting a little bit nervous if they anticipate that we're going to see some kind of currency intervention. Okay, let's talk about oil now, uh, Craig. It's fallen heavily 
over the past week or so, about 10%, but it's actually bounced back today. Uh, We've seen the group of seven finance ministers announcing today that they plan to implement a price cap on uh, Russian oil. We've also got OPEC plus uh, meeting next week and the Iran talks continue. But you were saying to me just now off air, uh, there's not much positivity coming from those talks at the moment, which perhaps is one of the reasons why oil is up today. There's so many factors feeding into the oil price right now that it can sometimes be difficult to kind of ascertain what is moving what at what particular time. I mean, this week we have seen the oil price drifting low, and I think that's probably been driven by the fact that we've seen a lot more risk aversion in the markets, a lot more growth fears, recession fears, uh, potentially weighing on the kind of demand outlook. So perhaps that's feeding into the price. But at the same time, earlier last week, we had Saudi Arabia warning that OPEC plus could cut production if we do see the demand outlook deteriorate because of the growth outlook or if we see a nuclear deal between the US and Iran. So that kind of offsets some of that decline. As I say, though, we have seen it starting to edge lower this week. Then we've seen it bounce back today. And this came overnight. We saw some comments again on the back of this Iran nuclear deal talks. First, we had uh, Iran claiming that they'd sent a constructive response to proposals back to uh, the US and within hours we saw uh, that was kind of battered aside with a US official saying that the, the response was not constructive. That suggests to me, especially given the choice of words, that maybe something's hit a little bit of an impasse. We keep getting told this could be days away, but if one's describing uh, their, their their response as constructive and the other is saying not constructive, that doesn't suggest to me we're days away from signatures. So, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen the oil price uh, bounce back a little bit today. But like you say, there's so many different things feeding into this. You mentioned there about the G7 uh, agreeing to an oil price cap. Again, how that's going to be implemented, what the technical details of it are going to be, when it's going to be implemented. All of these questions are still remain to be answered. And earlier on today, we heard from the Kremlin and they said they'll stop selling oil to countries which support price caps for Russian oil. So, I mean, really, if this price cap is going to work, the G7 needs uh, some big countries to be on board with implementing it. And that surely includes India and or uh, China. And with that in mind, are we going to see either of those countries effectively be blacklisted by uh, by the Kremlin um, for taking part in this oil price cap? How is that going to be implemented? It, 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 where's the balance of power here? Will this be effective? It's really difficult to say at this point in time because I don't think this is something that the Kremlin would want to do. It's such an enormous revenue generator for the current for the country if if india and china for example joined in any oil price cap that would be devastating uh for for russia and for the kremlin especially if they follow through on these threats but i'm not necessarily sure that they were going to uh, actually see that happen and if the kremlin did then follow through on those threats we're talking about up to 10 million barrels a day of oil that they produce around half of which they export coming off the market we think the markets are tight, tight right now well let's see what happens when when one of the world's biggest exporters uh takes takes a, a lot of their oil off the market then we'll see incredibly tight markets and then we could see 200 dollars oil so this is something that's going to be really difficult to implement even if it can get some uh, big names on board That's a frightening prospect, $200 a barrel for uh, oil. And of course, with the gas situation as well, Nord Stream 1, apparently back on tomorrow. Apparently. Uh, So, I mean, obviously, it's going to be a nervy 24 hours until we actually see gas flowing. I don't think anyone's going to become 
too optimistic and get carried away. Uh, and obviously, we know that, uh, that Russia can kind of switch it off again uh, as and when it decides to, or as and when Gazprom, should we say, uh, decides to. Already now they're talking about the fact that this uh, the t- only functioning turbine needs to undergo technical maintenance every 1,000 hours, which account which amounts to around every 42 days. Really aligning with this narrative that that Russia wants to ensure that there's no certainty around gas supply in Europe, that prices remain high because of the uncertainty with regards to flows. It also comes on the same day that um, uh, von der Leyen announced that the EU had reached 80% of gas storage filling um, earlier than expected. Now, that's a big move. Obviously, that's not enough to sustain it through the winter, and they've got much more uh, ambitious targets. I think they want to get it to 95% by November, but they are well ahead of schedule on that. So that gives provides some hope that we can see um, a little bit of uh, promise going into a troubling winter period. And if they can get to 95% and we have a warmer winter, then that removes a little bit of the leverage from uh, uh, from Russia on the gas front. But I mean, we know that this is not going to be straightforward winter. I think prices are going to remain high. I think we're going to see Europe continually on the edge uh, and being pushed to the edge. And I think we're going to see that uncertainty weigh heavily over the course of this winter period, regardless of what happens on a day-to-day basis. But the, again... Everything we've just said with regards to oil and gas, etc. It just goes to show how many moving parts there are, how volatile this market, how uncertain this market is. And it explains really why prices are doing what they're doing. Craig, we'll be talking to you again on Monday and reviewing the week ahead. But in the meantime, have a great weekend. You too. Cheers, mate. This is the Oanda Podcast.